welcome to the boys who would be critics this week we're discussing dc's new superhero comedy shazam and because shazam is kind of reminiscent of an era of like mid-budget movies made just for kids and more specifically teenage or like young adolescent boys we're following it up with a forgotten mid-budget movie marketed entirely to adolescent and teenage boys and that is star kid from 1997 uh Moon is with me as always to chat about both films how are you doing Moon? I'm good. I Today, I kind of spent the day going to a giant nursery looking for a plant for my room. And I couldn't really find anything colorful, but I guess it's still early to mid-spring, so I kind of have to wait till summer. But I want like a good two, three-foot plant that's either orange or purple or some variations of color. Because we keep talking about color and the lack of color in films in our last episode. So I want to fuse some color in my life. We were talking about the lack of color in one film last week, didn't we? It was the Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery, yeah. We talked about it. The other films had color. Yeah, but we were talking about Pet Cemetery. Okay, that's fair. And yeah, so that's that's been my day. How's been your day, Brendan? You're off for the next week to sunny Vancouver. Uh, at the end of the week, yeah, I fly out to Vancouver. Um, no, my week's been fine. Uh, I mean, it is like Monday, so the week has just started. All right, well, that's that. So do you want to talk about Shazam? Yeah, let's go with Shazam. Okay. What do you think about Shazam? That <laughs> we're doing that. Uh, Shazam, uh, yeah, I... Had a theory early on when we did the Aquaman podcast where I thought that horror directors would be very good and integral in terms of directing action because of enclosed spaces and there was a sense of space before they started working within those constraints. And that wasn't the case really with Shazam. The strengths are definitely not in the directing of the film and even the cinematography. I thought those were some of the weakest aspects of it. But the screenwriting, the themes, the... Last week I used to work with, I, where with uh, Larry Cohen. I called it infectious glee. There's a certain glee in this sort of film and uh, kid jovialness, which is very nice and pleasant to look at. Sorry, what about Larry Tom? Last week when I was talking about Return to Salem Lot, like, what was the stamp of a director in his sort of film? It is a kind of unique remark. And I said with Return to Salem's Lot that the uniqueness about the film was that there's this level of glee and enjoyment of the characters interacting with certain things or how certain things unfolded in the film. And some certain things in this film are very similar to that. There's a very kid-like, child-like, play-like quality to this film in certain aspects of it. And it's not saying, it's very hard to something to like, cynically package and manufacture some films try to do that it doesn't work but with shazam it does so that was a strength i think shazam is so their most their i think it's dcu's consistently best film so far i think better than aquaman it is better than aquaman overall that's why i say consistently aquaman has better highs in terms of certain aspects as does wonder woman but this in terms of plot and somatic and character stuff it's probably across the board the most solid out of these third films like uh Wonder Woman still has problems with the iffy CGI-ness and third act battle fight that this film doesn't, so... But, again, Wonder Woman is higher highs with the one with the Nomad Land and kind of the chemistry between Chris Pine's character and Wonder Woman, so... Yeah, it's it's good. Now they have three solid films to me that are, for my, in my personal opinion, my personal taste, above the upper echelon of kind of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They feel like movies. They have stamps and director stuff. The humor, to me, feels funnier and fresher than the stuff I've seen. In the, in the Marvel You're Cinematic Universe. against stuff like the Guardians films, uh, Ant-Man. Ant-Man. I mean, Ant-Man's no one considers that the upper echelon of Marvel. Oh, no, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean upper echelon. I thought you meant more of the humor stuff. But uh, upper echelon I would talk about is, to me, the top three Marvel Cinematic films are Black Panther, uh, not Civil War, Winter Soldier, and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. So yeah, those are what I consider to me personally the top three, if I had to pick any. So it compares to those three. Okay. What? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't pick those top three, but I also wouldn't. I wouldn't tip those three over 
probably the three I would pick for Marvel. But that's yeah. I mean, what would what would order. be your three? It doesn't matter. No, it does not. Absolutely not. But uh, yeah. So I no, I enjoyed the film. I just again. There's this element where the director really wanted to have, like, the Sam Raimi kind of kookiness in it. Not to spoil anything, but I will kind of. Is there a Sam Raimi? There not is. A, in, not in the visual components. It wants, this is what I'm saying. It wanted to be in some aspects of it. What I meant to that is that there's a scene in this film where the character goes in the boardroom and he has the embodiment of the seven sins and it will come out of these grotesque Lovecraftian CGI creatures. And that scene kind of wanted to be very similar to the scene I'm reminded of Sam Raimi in 2 where they're doing the autopsy of Doc Ock with the arms when they come alive. And... But cinematically, and again, I keep hearing the cinema language, and in terms of the camera angle, the camera choice, the satirical choice, in that regard, it didn't work or fulfill to that level of Sam Raimi did. So I think that was the weakest aspect. It was a film that had all these like Lovecraftian, altered dimensions, withered fantasy elements baked into it, but the camera work itself felt very pedestrian. I keep using the word TV directing. What I mean by that is not a lot of movement, not a ter- not a lot of terms of like in terms of coverage. You, again, you have a lot of single single coverage, some wide thing to establish it. But the one thing I did like about the directing is that nowadays you don't see a lot of what you consider cowboy shots, which are like knee up shots, and they call them cowboy shots, but they use that in like western the John Ford stuff when people are doing dual like gunfights at the OK Corral sort of thing. And they seem to be kind of forgotten about because either you do like mediums, wides, or longs. But I like seeing a couple of the Mark Strong's character within it. A couple had a couple of really good like cowboy shots in it, as did uh, Shazam as well. So that's the one thing about the directing I really like. Like it wanted to be like this kooky supernatural stuff, but like I thought the first Dutch angle showed up in at like an hour in when it was only a point of view of Shazam's character looking up from the um, dressing room, and the two characters are looking down when he crashes into it. But apparently there's one. Also in the boardroom, pointed up with someone else. Did you like go online to search for these? Or? No, it's just what I noticed from the film. Okay, but that's what I mean. Like, because I'm latching on. Like, the opening of the film just brings up the idea that these wizards are keeping seven sins at bay. There is multiple aspects and references to this, and if you're gonna make a film like that, get fun with how you're presenting it. And that's the one thing I felt weak in terms of the film. But everything else was so solid. Like, if this had James Wan's directing style with the script and themes and characters of this film, it'd be by far the best DCU film. It would crush a lot of current superhero films. Like, the best part of Aquaman is its directing choices, to me personally, because its action scenes are directed far better than a lot of comic book films nowadays. Can I just ask really quick, then, what is it about the cowboy shots you like? Is it just the fact, or what is good about them? Is it just the fact that you don't see them a lot? Or you, you why, don't see why, them why a lot. do they heighten with this film? I don't know. You don't see them a lot, but they also, because in your head, when you want to grow up with stuff, when you think of cowboy shots, you think of a character who's almost imposing. You know something's going to go down, because it's kind of like, his guns are here, and he's about to pull out, a sort of thing. So it's more of like, you have a subconscious reference to that sort of thing. But the other interesting thing was, the bokeh in this film was fascinating, because nowadays... What's a bokeh? Bokeh is that cinematic... When you see something in the background that's out of out of focus, right? Where it's almost like pixelated, not pixelated, but in terms of it's out of focus, and you have the character in the foreground, and the more bokeh you kind of have, or whatever you call the texture in terms of the personal opinion, the more the character in the foreground pops from it. And I find a lot of bokeh in mainstream films don't um, differentiate the character from the background for the foreground. It's not as out of focus, but there are some shots, in particular with the cowboy shots, where those characters are out of focus from the background, and it kind of adds a cinematic edge to it, which I found really cool. You don't think the backgrounds in modern films are out of focus enough? I find a lot of stuff is yeah. incredibly washed out in the background. I mean, you could be washed out, but that's what I mean. The bokeh, in terms of... Because bokeh doesn't mean completely washed out, but the actual texture of itself is slightly different. And I found the bokeh of this film specifically to be very reminiscent of an older time, of a more interesting time. I mean, it's not completely... More interesting time. I, no, but, it's like... It's a more interesting time than what we're living in right I, now. Yeah, that's right. But I'm talking about, like, in a cinematic way. And the other thing that I found really interesting is that, like... 
I don't know if anyone's talked about it, but the Mark Strong villain character is clearly a surrogate for Trump. He is a character with, like, massive daddy issues and insecurity. He wants to separate families. He goes into an immigrant's family home and literally calls it a shithole. He could use any other word, but he used that specifically. Like that's a, a word that never gets used in modern context. Yeah. It's a very unique word. He could have used anything else outside of shithole. Also, like, the one thing he has inside of him, the only demon spoilers he will not let go, is envy. And everyone feels Trump is very envious of things that he does not have or does not prove the own. There's the thing where he's not as good as his predecessor. So there's a lot of, like, allusions to that sort of thing. And the idea of family and identity, a multi-ethnic and a multicultural household, is very important here, that unifying aspect of the film. So there's a, t- a lot of things to tie in with that. Like, even, yeah, his dad is abusive, very much like Trump's dad, which forces him to become more and more sociopathic and cut off those emotions from that for that character. So, yeah, there, there are small, minor elements that I don't know. Wait, is his dad abusive? His dad yelled and screamed at him, telling him it was his fault he got into an accident. It was, was his fault they got into that accident. I know, I know. But still, the way the dad interacted and the way that he allowed the brother to kind of bully the younger brother, the Mark Strong character, is clearly coming from not a healthy household, right? A very okay. competitive dangerous uh top of the pack sort of wolf pack sort of thing so yeah those are my two cents on shazam i think that's four cents but it's a whole dollar right. in quarters <laughs> i i didn't have the read on Don. i didn't see a lot of donald trump as though his dad is like a gazillionaire who lives in a building with the family name on it so and then he goes back to said family name to take it over and then i mean that's yeah yeah there, there, there are daddy issues but there are daddy issues with a lot of villains i think daddy or like lost love interests we're getting a lot of daddy issues back in film because remember like about 90s films it's all about well, it's all, yeah, yeah. in 90s films a lot of things the daddy's abandoned because he works too hard and now the parents of those now the kids of those things are not the adults and in fairness in those <laughs> movies it was daddies who had parenting issues I think no, they're kind of bad because they're working too hard. Like, yeah. think about Jingle. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry, the Jingle All the Way or what we talk about, yeah, Starkid and Cars. Like or any Jim Carrey film, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so maybe, yeah. Yeah, it's not the kids that care. I mean, the kids do in those movies. I mean, the, the kids, kids absolutely do figures. care. But the kids aren't the central figures in their movies. It's more about, like, they're a device to make the dad feel bad. Kind of, but also in Starkid, the kids are the main figure, but there's things there. Well, the movie, in the movie, like, Jack better. Frost is very similar to that. In Santa Claus with Tim Allen, is kind of a disparate thing between the two of them. It's almost split between the two of them. And. There's a couple of others that I'm thinking are very reminiscent of that. The dad in there and the kids, and it's most focused on the kids and them trying to be an adult in the lack of presence of a father figure. Like Fly Away Home also is about the dad is kind of absent, but then they kind of come together. And it's not as much about the fathers, but also the parents. It becomes a double sort of thing. So, yeah. I mean, you're right. Jim Carrey's Liar Liar is more about the kid, but that's one aspect. And more about the dad than the kid. But yeah. You know what all those movies have in common, though, that, with the exception of Fly Away Home, which I don't really remember? No. Oh. Not very good. Fly Away Home is good. We should have reviewed Fly Away Home. Sorry, Flyway Home, we should have probably watched on the podcast at some point. None of this is about Shazam. No. So, sorry, what were your thoughts on Shazam? I don't even remember. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was going to say, what I thought, like, I guess you you didn't like some of the shot choices. I think, I think one, when you're doing a lot of comedy, uh, some of that plays better in, like, some standard, like, easier coverage, unless you're doing specific aspects of visual comedy. I think of films like Groundhog Day, which has pretty... Like, there are some pretty moments, but it's a pretty, like, standard shot film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of that, like, trying not to flash too much with your, uh, trying to do what too much fancy allows the humor to play in kind of a uh, an unfiltered sort of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think is great about this film, and maybe great's a little bit of an exaggeration, I think this is the kind of film that I would, like, want, when we talk about Rotten Tomatoes, that kind of gives a pass to every mainstream big-budget film, specifically the ones that come under from the uh, the Marvel umbrella is this is kind of the standard I would want for, like, this is a good film. 
this is like that like solid B plus. You can recommend it. Go have fun. Like I would expect this to get like a like a lot of like three and a half stars kind yeah. of things and get that like high super fresh rating. Much more than those films that kind of phone in because this I think has this film one has surprises in it because they hold stuff back in the trailer. They have uh, a third act turn that isn't just like uh, good guy and bad guy punch each other until one person wins. Mm. This actually has some plot inventiveness and goes in a few directions that I didn't see coming. And really, I think hands down, Zachary Levi kind of kind of really makes this film work. I think he's an excellent casting choice for the role. Yeah. Um, what you get with this film, apart from having something that I think a lot of like young kids will enjoy, uh, for one, because of the comedy, because it's a movie for kids that are about kids, as opposed to like movies for kids that are actually just about adults who put on costumes, uh, is the horror element. The fact that you have a villain that also has like an army of monsters and like pretty well designed, kind of creepy looking monsters. I thought they looked they looked really solid in this film. Is a really fun, interesting element that you don't see anymore because you would assume that's going to alienate a certain demographic. Like some people are going to find that too scary, too horrifying. So the fact the studio kind of is giving their directors enough freedom to kind of have something that's totally inconsistent in that regard, to go from, we're going to go from, like, Zachary Levi, ha-ha, lots of fun shtick, to, like, monsters devouring people in an office building is really cool. And I really appreciated that part, because Marvel would never. No, that Like, that's where I think, like, to your point about the, if you want to compare the best of the Marvel and the best of uh, DC, the best of DC are different films. Mm-hmm. Like, just completely different styles of movies. The three Marvel films, you're going to go, like, they're, they look very similar. They have the same kind of shots. They have the same... They fall under the same brand. Yeah, so there's one moment in this film where a character kind of gets incinerated, but not incinerated away in a Marvel film where it's almost clean and sanitized, but gets disintegrated in a really great, fun oh, way that yeah, got me cackling. And not a bad person, either. No, 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 no. Ash. Yeah, exactly. And I think... The the closest comparison to a kind of film like a director would kind of make this, I'm kind of reminded of... Um, so talking about, again, set choices, because this would talk about Seven Deadly Sins and kind of the fantastical elements of things, but also daddy issues and element of a fascism and authoritarianism of that regard, is that this would be a film kind of... I'm thinking of on a lesser level of Del Toro. I'm kind of reminded of, like, those things where Hellboy 2, where there's a fantastical okay. fantasy element of it. There's these characters in Seven Deadly Sins. They're all these just... Right, this is a film mixed with a fantasy film. Yeah, so what, I'm, so what I'm thinking of is when I say the directing choices, that's what... Guillermo del Toro is so good at harmoniously bridging those two elements together. He has this very inventive, unique, heralded visual aspect in terms of his, his, his costume design, his production design, and his set design. And the film kind of... And the way he shoots all of those together. That's what I'm saying. Which is the thing that a lot of directors fail at. That's exactly what I'm saying. I wanted the other half, and James Wan is the closest I've kind of seen in terms of bridging those two together. But del Toro... And I guess he's one of those filmmakers where Hellboy 2 will, in retrospective and years, and even starting now, will get more and more love. Because, like you said, it's well, not. Probably a f- now that the new Hellboy is out, yeah, people it's, are not giving it much love. It's not a film that exists on any spectrum in terms of an in unique, indelible stamp that the director has on the film. Allows his like personality to shine through it, but also tells a franchise story with a hook that leads to a third film, which he unfortunately never made. And at the time, it wasn't appreciated. Like, 2008. It's a very fascinating year for cultural stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, for fan, when you look at the fourth superior film that released that year, what avenue we went down as opposed to the other avenue we kind of kind of shut off and now it's under construction. It Iron, Man. Iron Man and The Dark Knight. They're well, both like these post-gritty, 9-11 traumatic films. Did The Dark Knight really inspire like a subgenre of superhero films or just... I mean, the I, well, a lot like, like the gritty realism aspect, which Iron Man kind of played with as well because it was more grounded in that sort of aspect. And also Batman vs. Superman also had a grounded vs. Superman. So they still try to bring some Nolan-esque elements 
into Batman vs. Superman and Man of Steel, in particular Man of Steel. So yeah, I would say so. I guess you're right, because yeah. they brought in the same, uh, the, the writer and producer. Right? No, that's, yeah, they brought David yeah. Goyer back for this sort of stuff. Yeah, so I think, like, and, but, yeah, and the two films people don't think about that era are Punisher Warzone and Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. And even when I remember watching Hellboy 2, I'm like, there's still some fun elements where I came to the theater, the two people I was watching were like, that was garbage. I'm like, there's still some interesting, stupid things about it. Oh, it's a lot more fun to watch now, just because it, the aesthetic elements of it are un- far superior ugly. than most of what we what we get, or probably better than, like, 90-95%. But what was the story with uh, Alexia Alexander was in a podcast where she was talking somewhere where she said that, like, Who? the director of Punisher Warzone, because they got the cheap copies of Punisher Warzone being scanned to them, because at the time, Marvel wasn't making any money. Like, they were leasing a car dealership. They loaned out everything to make the money. Like, they were nearly bankrupt. It was, like, the 2008 recession. But the copies they sent out to people of the Punisher Warzone comics uh, were bleeding on the edges in terms of the color was bleeding, right? Because it was a cheap print. But they thought that was the aesthetic of Hellboy. They thought that was the aesthetic of Punisher. So when you see Punisher with those reds and greens and the ridiculousness of it, they just thought that was the style of the comics, not realizing they just got a bad print because they couldn't afford a nicer print of the comics sent to them. So that's why that aesthetic oh, it was a comic exists. Page. That's why yeah. Okay. So that's why those comic pages. That's why that film looks like that. They got the comics, but they were the edges were bleeding these red and greens because they were printed on a cheaper material or with a cheaper ink, and they thought that was just the aesthetic of it. But at the point, Marvel is too poor to afford a proper print. That's kind of funny. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. Those aesthetics don't exist in these sort of films anymore. And being exactly right, he killed it. And I was telling you after the movie, he reminds me of a modern day era of like a Brendan Fraser. Like if the film was made in '99, 2000. It's the ideal thing for Brendan Fraser to be in. Like early two thousands, yeah, 2000s. Yeah. Sense. yeah. Like it's a very Brendan Frasery type role. <laughs> Brendan Fra- yeah, but Zachary Levi's channeling his best of that in that regard. But yeah. Well, there's only a few guys that I feel like really have that kind of like uh, leading man type of glee, and like Chris Pratt for a while had that, and I feel like he's kind of like with the uh, with the Jurassic World movies, they've tried to like make him more like, no, you're actually going to be like the cool new Indiana guy. Jones, yeah. and I don't really yeah. see it working as well. But Zachary Levi, yeah, really, really is just a perfect fit for this this product, mm-hmm. and the material plays well for him. And there's a lot of just there's a lot of just like really nice handling of the writing in this film, uh, which has been a problem in a lot of DC yeah. movies. But this has a nice pace to it. It gets it doesn't drag and it doesn't uh, and it also doesn't like draw out needless details. Mm-hmm. Um, but it but it moves at a good speed and has a lot of really fun creative elements between having the kooky wizard. Uh, and it finds and it finds the humor and the absurdity in a different way than kind of uh, what you've kind of come to expect from the MCU. And maybe it's just because the films look so much different from the MCU that the humor feels different. Yeah. But maybe I think that's probably just having that actual child protagonist type of aspect to it. It's different than what you get in something like a Homecoming. Yeah, and the kids in this film are very good. Like, I think Asher Angel's the name who plays Billy Batson, and then the kid who plays Fred is an it. I can't remember the kid's actor, but he's, he's a really good kid. He has these, mm-hmm. these monologues about his disability in the film, about how he wants to be a superhero. Of course, that's still pretty well. And the interesting thing is the coding of uh, gay characters, homosexual characters is more overt in this film because there's a one throwaway line where it's kind of where one of the characters... Oh, yeah, yeah. Which, m- which Marvel would never do. I mean, there's apparently the coding in Captain Marvel about that sort of stuff, but it's never as overt as in this film. Marvel also wouldn't do the strip club joke. No. And that's, like, this film has enough, like, this has some, like, courage in it, and it reminds me of some, something, like, it's it's interesting, because you try, you watch some of the old films, and you try and juggle, like, the elements of, like, oh, we clearly had some, like, non-PC stuff that we've removed that's probably for the better that we've removed, but we've also gotten incredibly safe in the kind of jokes and the kind of humor that we allow into films. Yeah. Uh, and this film seems to manage, like, you have 
bu- you have like some legit nasty bullies who to ju- feel more than just one dimensional that literally beat up a disabled kid in the first scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have jokes about kids drinking beer. You have jokes about kids going to strip clubs. You saw this in It as well. But outside of that, I feel like our films have really been incredibly protective and sheltering of child characters for fear of like sparking some kind of like backlash with an audience. And it's really refreshing to be like, no, when we were kids, we swore you if someone could steal a pack of cigarettes or beer, you're done, right. We were trying to drink it. Yeah. Like this type of stuff just feels a lot more authentic and a little more free. And the fact they include like gory, violent monsters chomping people to bits yeah. is just just icing on the cake. I just yeah, and we also have ladybugs as kids, so that's one of the bonuses. Yeah, they don't have notice. It's a side note. Yeah, <laughs> but um, that's the one thing I felt like wished more that there was more of a tactile quality because I like the design of the creatures, these seven deadly creatures, but. I wanted, like, a tactile quality to them. They were... The CGI in some spots and with them... Because this isn't... It's expensive for, like, a film, but for a blockbuster film, this isn't too expensive. The film is only $100 million, right? They're making these safe, mid- to a little bit higher-tier blockbuster films. Does this count as mid-tier now? Kind of weirdly, yes. Because these superhero films either go... But that's what I mean. These superhero films go for broke, right? Like, the lower end of the stuff would be $150 million to about 250 to $300 million. This Deadpool, is one... I think, was even less than $100 million, but... Uh, I think so. Maybe, yeah. But this one was only... The first one, yes. I'm thinking about the second one. Um, I mean, Red... Like, Cowboy 2, the only one now that I can think of, that was rated R with $50 million, and that... Apparently, like, one of the worst aspects of the film is the CGI. Like, it's mm-hmm. bad across the board. So I think... Do you really... You didn't have... You had a problem with this CGI? Kind of, yeah. I li- again, it's a weird thing where I like the design itself, but mm-hmm. the CGI of the creatures themselves... Could you see these creatures, like, being built practically and moving? In some aspects, yeah. But I'm saying the close-ups, you can kind of toy around between CGI and practical stuff, Yeah. Absolutely, in the way you're going to shoot them. Bit. This also did not shoot a lot of close-ups of the creatures, though. No, yeah, they that's right. They tried to like, keep them in like the in, the aesthetic, in, like, in wider aesthetics and a yeah. little bit in the background, partly because I think they're probably worried about pushing a PG-13. Maybe, um, but, I think, look, but I could be wrong. I mean, that's the thing. Like Del Toro would combine the CGI and element. Like, think about that scene in Hellboy 2 where you had the giant elemental creature, which was, I swear, a combination of close-up practical effects and CGI effects. I mean, a lot of those creatures were, but... But you're there's not... no other director who makes fantasy films like as well as Del Toro. The closest no. we've gotten was like when his BFF directed the third Harry Potter film. Yeah, yeah. Like this is that that is the top echelon of a fantasy film. But even this. like Aquaman had really like the trench creatures had really decent CGI in them, wherein you kind of believed it. Like my big thing was Aquaman had like twice, maybe three times the, the budget. budget. That's what I mean. Yeah, so that's what I mean. Like there's still budgetary concerns in the film, but yeah. Aquaman. Yeah, I, I, I can't stand for a hundred million dollar film has budgetary concerns. But it felt like it. Like, it, it feels no, it feels it, constrained. There is no excuse if you have a hundred billion dollars to be constrained. This is the world we live in. This is not a constrained film. A film that shot in Hamilton and Pittsburgh. Like, Toronto and Hamilton are world class cities that are. But it's like no big name actors with only like one or two set pieces, which aren't like world-ending crazy beaters. They're just they're excellent set pieces. They're, they're actually the really Western good, yeah. Dungeon is great. I actually, again, I am more of an advocate for this sort of film than the Big Temple stuff. These kind of $100 million things which allows for a unique voice to go through so that if they do lose, it's not as much. Like, Venom did really well for this stuff even though I didn't like Venom. This is another one kind of in this regard. Hellboy 2's budget better, was only... Probably better effects than Venom, I think. Yeah, and Hellboy 2 was made, I know in 2008, but its budget was only 65 or $85 million, yeah, one of the one two. One of the best living directors around. Yeah. So, and I think the next aspect is that if it does well, they're going to be going with it, the Joker. If Joker does well, because it's another one of those $100 million, $80 million uh, films, if yeah. Joker does well, we're going to get a lot more of this sort of stuff. Where I think they'll be less worried about the cinematic universe, more like, let's pump out. Like, with that new Bird of Prey movie coming out, um, The it's Emancipation of Quinn, Quinn, yeah, Emancipation of Harley Quinn, I think that's budget, the same thing. I think that's going to be their motto. They maybe have one or two big budget stuff, like the Aquamans and 
the Wonder Woman. That's a good model for the DC because they have more interesting side characters than kind of like Marvel's thing is build the whole aesthetic, but that's kind of what they've uh, kind of been like laying the blocks for for a long time. DC needs to just yeah keep keep grabbing directors, giving them freedom. And the products are, are starting to speak for themselves, finally. Yeah, I mean, Aquaman, and I think both Aquaman and uh, Shazam are two in a row that they've done well. And uh, yeah. One, did Wonder, Was there a gap between Wonder Woman and the others? Wasn't it was Wonder there, Woman, then Bat... Then maybe there was a Justice League. Justice League, League that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I think that's what, what happened. Because remember, they reshot parts of Justice League so they could have more um, people from Wonder Woman's homeland. Why am I forgetting the name? So they can have more Amazonians in it. Yeah. Okay. yeah. For this film, they got the same like scenic art team... That did the uh, that bo- did both Pacific Rim and did uh, Pacific Rim and Suicide Squad, and I think this film like the the visual elements hold up. I mean, the CGI you can make your use for, but I think that cave is really interesting. Oh, the cave work. I think the yeah. family's house is a, is a nice little piece, though it's not. You know, you're not gonna have to blow your budget to build interiors. This is what I'll give you credit for, and you're right. Is that the location itself, the tactile location, like the offices, the buildings, the house itself, they felt very lived in. They felt. Like you said, tactile. You can reach out and you can pick things off the wall or look at a picture frame. So that I agree completely with. And there is more of a considering third act. And the third act in this film, which will not, I will not spoil because it doesn't get anywhere in the trailers. And once you get to it, it's great. And it has surprises. Oh, absolutely. Just both yeah. like aesthetic surprises and, and like plot points where you go, oh, I didn't see that coming. That's a great little twist there. No, that's, that's the nicest part about the film mm-hmm. is that you can still be surprised in the year 2019 in your big film. Which is just what will literally never happen in an MCU standalone film. And that remains my like major objection to all of their uh, yeah. all of their non-team-up uh, tentpole type of things. Even though they're all technically tentpoles. Yeah. It, you're right, we do have tiers of tentpoles. We absolutely do have tiers of tentpoles. I mean, <laughs> I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not willing to accept that 100 million counts as mid-budget. I, I can't do that. I know, right? I won't. <laughs> Wrong. I won't like, what is what was Avengers budget? Three hundred million when you went Endgame. Two hundred fifty. That's got to be giant. It's yeah. But I mean, they're sh- working on a billion dollar platform where they think they're gonna try. Where that's their target is to make yeah. one or two billion dollars. Movies again. Movies like this no longer considered movies. We live in a new aesthetic world where they're like events or part of something. I mean, but this isn't. This isn't an event. Shazam is its own little thing that. Because Captain Marvel was events. Captain Marvel already has made a billion dollars. This has only made $200 million globally, just over, I think, or something like that. But Captain Marvel was made out of just, like, cynical evil. Let's be real. Uh-huh. Like, this is the studio, and I brought this point up again and again, but that actively spent 10 years suppressing, like, any female heroes from getting their own standalone film, and then had the gall to tout themselves as feminist champions by making Captain Marvel as, like, Entry number 20. They pulled their Black Widow action figures from stores or, like, just didn't bother to make them. And this is the studio that would get to be the bastion of feminism. Like, n- get lost. Get yeah. lost. Yeah. So Shazam is better to me than any stage one Marvel movie, I want to say. So this is kind of the stage one sure. or stage one and a half of DCU films. So keep going with what you're doing. Again, my big gripe is just I want more <laughs> cinematic oomph. In these sort of films. But hey, if you're going to deliver in terms of character, in terms of theme, in terms of giving me a great multicultural family that's trying to kill the evil white dude and trying to rip apart multi-ethnic families while calling out the shitholes, go nuts. Yep. They, well, they had the nice... I thought that both Wonder Woman and uh, and Aquaman had some nice like cinematic uh, elements oh, to them. Yeah, no, the so. No Man's Land sequence in that, in that film and the opening stuff and the stuff on the island... Their homeland is all good. It's only the third act of that film that comes with CGI hodgepodge match, which is the issue. Aquaman still has some of the best, if not best, directed 
superhero stuff of the last 10 years. Because the thing is that Christopher Nolan's actually directing in terms of action sequences. They're not that great for Dark Knight. They're filled with, like, inconsistencies. That's, like, the one thing. But I remember watching that. I was one of the first people that got one of the uh, preview sneak pieces of the Dark Knight right before I went up to college. And he got me, my family went down to, like, the Scotiabank Theater and, like, two something to watch it. And I still remember when that truck flipped, everyone was... <gasps> but that's less about, like, the actual scene to get together, but rather than an actual truck flip on its head and mm-hmm. IMAX and crash. It's more of just, like, the oh-my-godness of it rather than the actual directing of it. I think, I think the two can't be separated. Interesting. The act of, like... Especially in today's day, when you were fighting for modern, for like modern practical stunts, mm-hmm. the person who's at the helm of that does get some, does get credit for that. I wonder how much money they would have to bring to like a dumb truck outside of George Miller's house and like wherever Perth, Melbourne, in Australia to kind of tell him to come back to one of these. Like, can you bring him out of retirement? I think, he, <laughs> just, I think he's going to do the stuff that he wants to make, and that could be Happy Feet Three for all we know. I know. I'm so curious. If I, we we missed out on the Justice League films, there's a reality already exists, and there's like three or four spinoffs. We never got it, but uh, yeah. Should we uh, switch gears to Star Kid? Let's go to Star Kid. Star Kid is a movie that I guess I'll give the premise for it really quickly. It's and also Star- directed by Manny Cotto. We should throw that out there. Why is that significant? Manny Cotto is the I, director. I looked him up and he's got like a lot of like TV credits. He's got TV credits, but most a lot of people who are into horror really like. He's like into horror fans. It's kind of underappreciated because he made a film called Doctor Giggles, but a yes. guy gets mad and makes a bunch of puns. We, I think Jay and I talked about it last week. I found horror fans kind of underappreciated because it came out like eight years too late. And if it was in the '80s, Doctor Giggles would be on the par, or just lesser of like a Freddy Krueger sort of thing. And then yeah, he worked in terms of writing episodes of Dexter and Twenty Four. So he kind of he's done has some tales from the crypt. Like, yeah. he's a working director. Yeah, and he's done niche stuff there and there. So yeah, Manny. Sorry, so Manny Cotto did. Mm-hmm. Made Star Kid in 1997. It is about a young kid who's, you know, bullied in school, has a dad who works too much. It's kind of your atypical 90s protagonist. Um, and one day, a giant space shoot, suit, loot, suit lands somewhere in his town. He happens to be the one kid who was uh, who finds it because he's been running away from bullies who were going to beat the pulp out of him. Yeah. Finds the space suit, and when he gets in, it's able to activate it and all of a sudden, kind of like the kid who gets powers in Shazam, finds himself in an adult-sized body that is incredibly strange-looking. Like, the costume and, like, creature designs in this film really are something I'm sure we'll talk about. Then he goes forth with his super strength, superpowers, and tries to explore what what he can do with it, gets to live out a lot of, like, childhood, adolescent strength fantasies, re-pick on the bullies, until another alien that is got its own type of, like, really creepy, strange creature design that's part David Cronenberg, part Power Rangers... Uh, shows up and wants to take the suit for itself, and little Simon, our protagonist, is going to have to decide whether or not he's able to step up and be brave and be a hero to protect the suit, or if he's going to run away and hide and just let the fates take care of the universe. So that is Star Kid, which, you know, has some clear parallels to Shazam, and mostly in watching it just makes me appreciate all the stuff that Shazam did really well. I mean, this film does start off as a character reading a comic book, which you may be more like a superhero. There are cursory plot things that are very similar. Both of them have a suit training montage set to a song, which I want to talk about a little further. Both of them involve a sequence wherein they rescue someone from a Ferris wheel crashing, and they both involve a suit, a joke about trying to get out of the suit to pee. Uh, so yeah, it's there's nothing unique or interesting. It's a completely forgettable film that kind of exists. It probably did well enough for the time it was made. There's no real reason to kind of recommend it, which is kind of disappointing. When I got into the first five minutes of it, I was totally down. We're going to this alien, Ewok, scientific planet where we're trying to stop these evil aliens. The aliens actually kind of look like the aliens from um, 
galaxy quest as well slightly slightly yeah if you remember what those guys look like same kind of time and then the suit gets ferried off other this planet of scientific friendly pacifistic ewoks are getting murdered by this invade invading evil force of brood warriors or whatever you want to call them yeah brood warrior hordes yeah. which i don't even fully know how to describe them other than they're they're not quite tentacly they're more spiky yeah they also kind of look like the uh, evil aliens kind of like the yurg kind of an amorph they just yeah, think, yeah, yeah, right. think, yeah i think yeah, like a little bit like that they're the kind of thing that i feel like if you shot like the, one of the weaknesses of this film i thought was how how much they like exposed the creature design to light yeah like if that thing hung out in the shadows a little more uh and was just kind of like implied rather than shown they took a little bit of the jaws playbook i think it's a really scary thing but they kind of in order to have action scenes just turn up the lights and let these two things that you can kind of clearly tell are rubber suits punch each other i did like the design of the brood warrior the cronenbergian terrifying organic goopiness of the inside of that suit terrified me the goop the inside <laughs> of the suit which is kind of like the precursor to the iron man helmet involves yeah. a practicalized face made out of like some like latex rubber that moves and molds for the creature to talk to the boy. It's a, it's its own little like kind of frightening thing. It is so Cronenbergian, like very Videodrome fly, mm, uncomfortable, yeah. uncomfortable. That you like why? Like I didn't see this film as a kid, but somehow the interior of that face mask is just etched in my head. So I must have seen it on a coming soon VHS or a snippet of trailer yeah, somewhere. I remember but getting I a lot of trailers for this movie. Yeah, but I don't remember actually watching it. Just that face it looks very reminiscent to me and I don't know why. The, it also like takes the kid's food and puts it in some weird quinoa sort of ball. Not quinoa, but kind of looks like a quinoa granola ball. it together yeah. and yeah. Just downs it? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. the kid got like a burger combo and a mash it together so he can eat oh, it and one yeah, side like something right. thing. So, yeah. And so there's a sequence in the film. Oh, and also like uh, Shazam, the sequence where they had the training montage, both of them set the songs. I can't remember what the song was set in Shazam, but in this film it was set to the song uh, Magic Carpet Ride, but not by Steppenwolf. I was like, why is there a copy of this? And I'm like, who did the copy of this? And there was a guy named Edgar Winters, who was kind of known as a leading percussionist and kind of musician as well. But what I found really fascinating was he did like this folk odyssey kind of album, which was written by L. Ron Hubbard, which is a science, like a Scientologist propaganda, like psychedelic yeah. rock song. Okay. Written like and performed, performed not written by Alron Hubbard by the guy to this cover of Magic Carpet Ride, and some of those songs appear in Battlefield Earth. <laughs> Speaking of alien okay. stuff, I found that so fascinating. Like, who is the person who did a cover of Magic Carpet Ride, and he did a whole album which was written by Alron Hubbard? But yeah, so that's one of the ones of the more fascinating things I enjoyed about Starkid, or was fascinated by Starkid. Just the. the the history of the guy who wrote the Steppenwolf cover that plays in the montage? Yeah. That's something I would never think about, even for a half second, honestly. I was like, why is, why are they doing a cover of Magic Carpet Ride? Can, <laughs> to, my, to my point about how uh, everything in this film just makes me appreciate Shazam more, one thing we didn't talk about in Shazam was its use of music, mm-hmm. and I thought the film handles music really well, Dumb. both for, like, humor and for, like, some darker moments. There's a, uh, there's a wonderful, like, I thought the, like, cold open of this film was really good. That involves the tragic backstory of the kid uh, driving with his dad and his older brother at Christmas, and you have a Christmas, like, one of the Christmas, classic Christmas songs playing. Do you remember which one it is? It's, like, almost upbeat, uh, but, like, has, like, a somber element to it. And the scene culminates in a car sideswiping their vehicle when you think they've escaped, like, nearly getting into an accident. Mm-hmm. And it blares the Christmas carol as the, uh, the like, upbeat, chippery Christmas song as the car does, like, this roll, and you assume everyone inside, except for the boy, is going to be just, like, horribly mangled by the end of it. 
it's a really nice, fresh choice that you don't see a lot anymore that you would kind of associate back with, like, oh, this is something we would have tried in, like, the Amblin days or the 80s when we had that kind of, like, uh, juxtaposition of, like, pleasant music with, like, traumatic, traumatic, horrifying events. Yeah. Like, that's a, that's a, that's an element that I know has existed in film, but I feel like we've moved away from, and that's whenever, and both when it does, like, the montage and the, and the beats, I thought the Shazam really used music well. So I'm going to go back to Shazam, because exactly what you said. One last thing. That's all this film is going to do, is make me go back to Shazam. Shazam is that there's the, clearly one of the director's favorite film in this movie is, like, Shazam's director is Gremlins. Because A, using ironic Christmas music to set against horrifying things that right. But the other aspect is this film loves the... It happens a couple of times where someone would go into a room and a lot of light would show out or something would permeate outside of it, kind of in the boardroom when the creatures are coming out, but also in the light when he goes in the bathroom, which is identical in Gremlins when you see the lights and the fog come out when they all go in the pool and they're all like... Oh. Like, he's clearly riffing off that scene of Gremlins, but like four or five times. And also the music choices as well. It's a good reference because tonally it's actually very similar where you actually have a, com- a comedic film that has like some really terrifying, yeah. darker elements. And but, I'll be real, like Gremlins is one of my all-time favorites. Like in Phoebe Cates, is talking about her dad who gets trapped in like the... Um, the yeah, chimney and the I gotta say, awesome that monologue is so useless. I love that <laughs> It has but no purpose in that movie no, whatsoever. That's, that's what makes those things unique. Nowadays, you would just, some, like, studio head would be like, no, we don't need this tonight. It's useless. You really don't. But <laughs> it's, it's so great. But that's, that, I swear, the director, one of the director's favorite films must be Gremlins. Because the use of ironic Christmas music and B, using a location with all these lights and fogs coming out to indicate something has happened inside happens multiple times you should have. You so, should, you, pe- more people should, like use Gremlins as a reference for their movies. We'd have better, Even we'd have be, we'd have cooler blockbuster films. Even Gremlins too. Uh, so yeah, back to Starkid. Uh, Starkid is, yeah, is a film that, there's nothing unique or interesting. Uh, Hyde from that 70s show of Danny Madison shows up as a young version of and himself. And then he just, yeah, he's like, he just, he just pieces. <laughs> well, this is, what I keep taking away from Starkid, uh, because I can't really build off of anything with Danny Matherson in it, nope. is the importance of the writers, of what writers do in movies. And all this movie does for its, like, first 15 to 20 minutes is just make me think about other movies that handle the same scenes better. Mm -hmm. Uh, For one, like, the bullying scene is about as generic of a, like, a big hulking kid just, like, picks a reason to be mad at this kid. Um, I don't really have a great comparison, though there have been better bullying scenes. Like, this is pretty, like, by the book. But the scene that sticks out to me is, like, the little kid who, like, has, like, the longing eyes for the pretty girl... That, that never seems to notice him and isn't confident around her. How do you want to establish that? And immediately what I thought back to was, like, the really simple scene in Spider-Man 1 that happens within the five-minute mark where Mary Jane Watson makes eye contact with Peter, waves, he waves back, and then we realize immediately she's waving to someone right who's right behind him, and she doesn't see who see even see he's there. Mm-hmm. All this really does is have the kid go upstare at her and then, like, kind of chicken out, and, like, we see him talking to himself later. It's just little aspects where you're like this is the same like beat for beat premise of a lot of other movies terminator 2 uh et all these elements are in and in every scenario this film isn't able to find particularly interesting ways to go about its scenes and you keep just going like uh and there's like there's a way to make this work but it's you got to go one step further this feels like that draft where you just have to go scene by scene and go like what's the more better what's the more interesting way to tell this how do we like how do we expand some like in, how do we, like, add some depth to these characters? Or how do we add payoff to, like, things that get broken to make those significant? Like, there's a Corvette that gets trashed, but it's the first time we've seen the Corvette. Um, compare that to something like Ferris Bueller, where you build the whole thing around, like, a character whose dad loves a vehicle, and at the end, the car gets trashed. Things like that, where you just go, like, 
all the beats are here, but there's no music. I'm going to back to Stephen King just quickly to the side. I just love the way he always has bullies. His bullies in the films are always like psychopathic, sociopaths. Like he always has the best bullies. They don't pull, yeah, they don't pull any punches in regards to the bullies. They're just insane individuals who've either been corrupted by the town or by any sort of abuse and they don't try to sugarcoat any of it. But the second thing is... And the bullies usually are pretty creative in like Mm -hmm. Stephen King films. Like the it scene where they like fill a garbage can full of water in the sink and then dump it on the girl in the stall? Yeah. That's some cruel bullying. That's yeah. much more interesting than someone just getting punched. Uh, one thing I always believe as a screenwriter, and I've always, like, harped on, is that I always, be- like, thought that theme and character are intrinsically linked. Mm-hmm. When you do one thing, you will causally affect the other. Because it's very difficult to develop theme outside of character because it's, it's an intangible non-entity unlike you want to talk about character, the narrative, or plot. Like, no one can sit there and be like, the themes of the film are blah, blah, blah. Like, it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. And, and the only way to express those elements in a screenplay, in my belief, is through the characters. Because they're the ones, uh, the character arc changes as does the theme gets explored, right? Mm-hmm. And so many filmmakers, I find, don't conflate the two of them and keep them separate causes. And that should never be the case. And with this film, it felt either A, he cared mostly about the set pieces or the weird alienness of it, or thought they would rush things because who cares what kids think, so watch anything cool or wacky, and these sort of set piece, these sort of elements would kind of happen to them. Maybe with Rush, because they only could have the budget for a certain amount, or they wanted to get it out by, like, summer season. So, you're right. It feels like there's another draft of the film where everything would be kind of tied in a little bit stronger. Well, you'd have to do a lot of tying in, I think. That's yeah. kind of the thing. And I feel a little bad picking on, like, a really small film from... A guy who, you know, is continuing to work, and yeah. kudos to him, but has not become, like, this household name where yeah. that's, you know, raking in millions and millions of dollars off of his Yeah, it feels like Mandy Cotto had a script he wrote, like, 10 years ago, a spec script, but that was based on, like, the E.T. fad of the 80s, and they were like, uh, they were like, hey, Manny Cotto, do you have something? We have this money, we want to make something, we want to rush we it up in theaters. We have that we've got to get in. Yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you want to throw anything out there? He's like, well, I have this one script that I wrote in, like, 88. I'm like, okay, not throw it in. And that's kind of how it felt. Maybe he wrote it around the time, but it's it's very much a reminiscent of it. Yeah, no, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. It feels very reminiscent where it feels like a movie where, yeah, it they needed something for that era, but it it feels like one of the ET riffs of the eighties, which you got a lot of, but somehow set in the like the mid to late nineties. But you're right about the character, the character and theme stuff, because this film does has the same flaw that I noticed. I've noticed in a few, I guess I'll say non-Marvel like blockbuster kind of summer adventure films, things like Goosebumps and stuff. Where you have the you set up your hero, you set up some like some challenges or things are going on with, and then they go on this adventure, they interact with some they go through all these challenges with something supernatural, and then in the end you see they've changed, but the change has nothing to do with any of the things they've been interacting with for the course of that film. For example, in Goosebumps you have a whole sequence where um well you set up this uh they set up the scene where the kid is about to be dropped off at school by his mom. And he's like, oh, can you drop me off here? I don't want people to see me with you, blah, 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 blah. Or doesn't want, like, him to know his mom's a teacher. I think that's the thing. And then by the end of the film, they confront all the goblins and the stuff. And then at the end, he goes like, oh, mom, it's fine. We can walk in together. This wasn't a part of the movie. That's not really, like, that's not actual character growth. No. Character growth has to be woven into the plot and the fabric of the film itself, where the character is having to confront their weakest part. And this film doesn't do that in any way either with Starkid. Like, he mostly just kind of, like, gets bored with the monster because he had to pee and couldn't and then leaves it. Like, that's not really hitting a low point or having to confront something ugly in yourself that you're not ready to deal with. No, the character, well, talking about, like, expressing character through dialogue, the film quite literally does that when the character, like, you have to be strong and strong doesn't come from physicality or the action to do or something like that. And that's, like, the closest thing where the actions of the character aren't dictated by any internal or personal growth or anything by the plot itself. It's more so someone states it than the character does it. It's a very cheap way of getting out of doing plot. 
and character and their and thematic development, but that's what the film does. And another thing you mentioned about the creature, actually, the voice of the creature is great, or the alien suit. And the only reason I know it, the only game I practically played growing up was World of Warcraft 3, and he played some of the voices of the major, major characters in it. It's like, why does it sound so familiar? Oh, yeah, it's Grom Hellscream from Warcraft 3 and the Frozen Throne. But, yeah, so that's, that's the big thing is I just, yeah, like you said, you wish those things would develop more, something more unique in terms of, like, the other interesting thing about the film is that it's impossible to have, like, a buddy cop sort of element to it, or, like, an ensemble piece to it of the it's, or the, or the standby me's, or the, uh, the E.T.'s, because it's so much of the kid. film is, like, the kid itself, and then you ham-fisted throw the mother, the, the surrogate mother teacher in it, and then the bully who becomes the friend, or the sister. And none of that really works or pays off, because none of those no. characters really have development. If that's the case, though, you can make this film kind of like the Iron Giant, where everything hinges on the relationship of the boy in the suit. Mm-hmm. But we don't really get that either. Like, you get a couple, like, uh, like the kid teaches the machine how to make jokes, or the yeah. the suit. It kind of reminds me a lot of, like, the cautionary tales of, like, screenwriters who want to, like, poo-poo, like, learning those, like, Sid Field's three-act structure type of things. Yeah. Because then you just kind of, like, artificially impose that on the film, so you hit your beats and you hit your checkpoints. But there's nothing really under the surface of any of them. This yeah. film is a film that does that. It just kind of goes like, okay, we got to have that separation point. So we're going to arbitrarily have the kid break up with the suit and leave. And then we're in the third act. And then this. And, oh, we got to, like, have the dad then at the end be a good dad and want to, like, pick the kid up at school so he's grown and we've seen change. None of this actually, like, is internal. None of this is actually what actual character development or writing is meant to do. Nope. And I would assume that... Uh, what's the director of this film? Manny Cotto. Manny Cotto has improved since then. He's continues to work and continues to make stuff. So apologies again for knocking a guy who made like a really tiny budget movie and we're just picking it apart. How many years later? Twenty-two. Has, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while. Wow, twenty-two years. Been, uh, Not quite. No, it was ninety-seven. So, so it's, it's two thousand nineteen. Uh, so twenty-two years. Twenty-two. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? I don't know. I was talking to someone who was like so excited about to listen to this podcast because he grew up with watching this over and over again. Star Kid, yeah. Sorry to him too. I know, right? I apologize, but uh, yeah. not a lot to say. Um, but we could talk a little bit more about the creatures and the suits because they're they're something you wouldn't make nowadays. No, no, quite that's, like that. That's what I'm thinking about the practicality of these sort of suits. Could you do it in the budget? The suit of the film, the Brutal looks pretty good. Outside of like the rubberiness of it, but the actual design and aesthetics of it are pretty cool. So yeah, I like I like that. And again, like things. Remember, I was talking last week about shadows being shadows, and with Pet Cemetery, the shadows felt like shadows in the film. They're the like, shadows are shadows. You can't CGI them. I know, but they look so good, like so natural in films like this. But you're right; some of the stuff is overlit in terms of the creature stuff. So it's a whole hodgepodge of this. It could have used a little more shadow at times. Yeah. Uh, okay, I guess I'll ask you this question because you complained about the overuse of CGI for the creature monsters in Shazam. How about the underuse of CGI and the overexposing of the practical suit in this film? Which would you Which would you rather? see into is see in a film today the second one honestly you are the only person i think who would feel that way but uh-huh. it would give me something unique and interesting to look at but you're but right. it's a guy in it's the old godzilla type of costume this looked a little bit old godzilla costume i mean it does look better but it's still like it's clearly like two guys in suits hitting each other yeah <laughs> yeah i know okay 
I gotta say, don't don't take designs of this into your concept pitches anytime soon. Be like, it'll be like this. <laughs> it'll be exactly like Starcade. You seen Power Rangers? It's gonna look like the Power Rangers. I mean, this looked be- a little bit better than the Power Rangers. Well, the Power Rangers were cheap. Thing every week. I think they were cheap. Even the movie and Power Rangers suits. Like pure daylight. Yeah. But... Even the movie Power Rangers suits. The one with the submarine and the cars. They're all cheap. I it's know they're Power all cheap. I know, but still, then why are you comparing them? I like, I know what had a bigger budget between this, the uh, Alvin uh, Captain Ooze like Power Rangers movie and this. I think this budget was twelve million. So this no way. I mean, some of the aliens. Let me see. Let me see. Again, the Pass alien it. stuff actually looks good in the beginning. Like the aliens who are Ewoks mixed in with scientists. Yeah, who kind of like okay. arm like Game of Thrones esque armor in it. Like, let's find out what Star Kids budget is. But Power Rangers, I still remember watching in theaters. I think, and I always thought it was Christopher Lloyd as the villain because he almost acts like Christopher Lloyd, but it's not. Well, no. <laughs> no, they couldn't afford Christopher Lloyd. Let's be real. <laughs> that movie was cutting all of its costs. Yeah, the budget for this film was $12 million. <sighs> a little more shadow, a little more mystery would have probably gone a long way. Again, the opening of the film is not bad. You get on that alien planet world, and they're shooting and fighting with practical effects, people flying stunts with sparks, and they're trying to ferry off the suit to whatever land. Like, oh, I'm getting into this. Glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I kind of felt like I have, <laughs> I've seen all this before in other, in other films that had a little more time for it. And then, and then yeah, and then the rest of the movie happens, and you're like, oh, this is really disappointing. I just... <laughs> I just thought it was I guess gonna... I felt that way five minutes before you did. Yep. No, as soon as he got to the kid and the disappointed dad is not going to pick him up or, like, can't pick him up after school because of that absentee 1990, 1990 dad trope. And you're like, oh, no. Okay. I'm trying to find a Power Rangers budget. Anything you want to say or should we just shut it off? Well, we can say that this had a slight type of, like, uh, Freudian, like, child teacher child teacher moment really briefly that oh, uh, maybe was intentional or unintentional where because he has to use the bathroom, he decides to go to his fairly attractive blonde elementary school teacher's place and ask him to like open up like the crotch part of the suit so that that was interesting uh there's no there's no doesn't seem to be any like freudian sex elements in shazam when he becomes an adult and could in in theory flirt with other ladies but i mean shazam does flirt and also power rangers did have our budget three million more 15 million but I, but Shazam is again. Uh, sorry, Power, uh, Power Rangers is more of an ensemble. It's got like I guess six have characters. They're to do a double feature, and they have to build. A, they have to build a lot more monsters too for Shazam for uh, Power Rangers. Yeah, they're just a little. I, yeah, I'm curious why that budget of that film is twelve million dollars. But yeah, yeah, there was a weird Freudian thing in the film. But the mo- but with all the into that teacher would also become his mom because the dad was flirting with her at the end, and they were all going to go fishing. Then it's really Freud. Then it's fully Freudian. Uh huh. So yeah, this week <laughs> we did. But we, what is the next step? Are we going to try and get to uh, the? Yeah, what am I saying? The new Leica film, which is The Missing Link, or... Well, it could be either be a surprise. We'll either do Missing Link and The Last Unicorn, which I think would be a good pairing of the two. Okay. Alternatively, we'll do Claire Denis' High Life, and I haven't figured out yet what we'll pair it with, so it'll be a surprise when people do come on and listen to it. Whatever screen somewhere, yeah. It is screening at Blue and VIP here. I thought it was out for a while. Just one theater here, which is Blue and VIP. So I'm going to go check it out. So maybe that'll be the next one. Unless you want to go watch The Curse of the Lorna. That's a joke. We're not. (laughs) I'm good. All good. (laughs) And then maybe we'll surprise them with Avengers Endgame, where we'll have you sit in there for 60 hours like we promised. I can happily, I will be going to see Endgame at some point, but probably like a week or two after. Don't talk in movie theaters. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week or the week after with uh, one of the films we have we brought up.